So someone said, uh, I wish we had a leader like Vladimir Putin. Do you agree with that? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome into Ideas Have Consequences, and today will be a little bit of an offbeat episode. We're doing a Q&A, and so I have some people here off camera who are gonna ask me some questions, and it's a, it's a gorgeous day in the American South. Uh, spring has definitely sprung here, so we thought we might, uh, we might just as well sit outside and do this Q&A, enjoy a good cigar. So that's what we're gonna do today. Um, Jonathan, fire away. Larry, what do you think about guns? <laughs> We're starting with an easy one. Well, I like them. I think you should own one. Um, I, uh, I believe that the Second Amendment exists for a reason. Uh, now, I will say that I'm not a gun nut. There are people you know, who are really, really enthusiastic about guns and they have a house full of them and they enjoy shooting and uh, they enjoy hunting, they enjoy all of that. Um, nothing wrong with that. Uh, that wouldn't describe me. I do have several, several guns, several types, shotguns, pistols, AR-15 for the zombie apocalypse. But um, I think I inherited my father's attitude when it comes to, when it comes to guns. My father was, uh, uh, was a career soldier and, um, you know, I think he always saw weapons as uh, something very important that you should have and that you should know how to use. Uh, I never knew him to be interested in, you know, uh, trap shooting or hunting. It just was not a thing for him. Uh, I probably inherited uh, some of that attitude. But if you don't know, uh, if you don't own a gun and you don't know how to use one, I strongly suggest uh, given our open borders, uh, I think it's going to become a reality for everyone. I strongly suggest that you get one and that you learn how to use it competently and confidently. I think that's important. Of the My issues, car has died on me. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> of the issues currently facing Americans: open borders, the economy, war in Ukraine, and corrupt politicians. Which do you think is the most important? We need to address. Which one of those issues do I think is the most important? I think they're all related. I think they're all related. I think they're all being driven by uh, the global left. I think they're all being driven by globalists. So I think that they're all related. And, uh, and I might address this in a later episode, but for instance, you know, it's, it's common knowledge has been demonstrated that Ukraine is being used for money laundering. I mean, it's going to corrupt Ukrainian politicians, but going to corrupt American politicians. We know that the Biden crime family, for instance, has been getting um, you know, a lot of money out of Ukraine. But where do you think the money's coming from as it relates to um, all these immigrants who are so well healed and coming into the country? Now, some of that is coming from foreign sources for sure, but I don't think it's all coming from foreign sources, particularly once they get into the United States, uh, getting cell phones, a lot of them show up and they, they seem to be uh, well-dressed, literally well-heeled, uh, well-funded cell phones. We're seeing uh, New York City giving out an awful lot of money to, um, uh, to immigrants, to illegal, to illegal 
um, aliens uh, in the country. We're seeing, we are seeing um, debit cards being given out. Where's that money coming from? Uh, it isn't, it's all coming from your pocket, but I think a lot of it is going over to Ukraine and it's coming back to corrupt politicians, but it's also going to fund a lot of the globalist agenda, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. So I think all of this is, I think all of this is absolutely connected. So someone said, uh, I wish we had a leader like Vladimir Putin. Do you agree with that? <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I definitely don't agree with that. I think what appeals to people who are not really in the know is they watched Vladimir Putin um, in that interview, and he was articulate, he was knowledgeable, flashes of charm, uh, he was confident, um, and he was obviously a Russian patriot. And I think uh, many Americans um, look at that and they think, gosh, I wish I had a leader like that. Uh, I need to remind you, to those of you who think that, that Vladimir Putin is a criminal, uh, just, like, just like Joe Biden. He's a criminal. It's why, why I think he can recognize the criminality of many American politicians. He knows what they're doing in Ukraine, not just because uh, you know, he has operatives there, uh, intelligence services who are informing him, but because it's the kind of things that he's doing in Ukraine. Uh, corrupt, nefarious things. And um, Vladimir Putin is a guy who let all those submariners on the Kursk die. He's a guy who had the Spetsnaz, the Spetsnaz, not the police, the Spetsnaz pumped poison gas into a Moscow theater to end a Chechen uh, rebel hostage crisis there, killing 120, roughly, uh, theater goers. I mean, this guy is ruthless. He's a guy who has imprisoned um, and assassinated his political rivals. Do, do not make the mistake of assuming that Vladimir Putin is a good guy. He's not a good guy. Neither is, neither is Zelensky and neither is Biden. But Zelensky is just a clown. He's just a, he's just a guy who's literally an actor. He does exactly what they tell him to do, right down to wearing the olive drab that he wears. He's bought and paid for. His, his orders are coming out of Washington. Um, Putin, on the other hand, and this is where I say there's a big difference between Putin and a Biden, is that Putin would do anything for Russia. He's a Russian patriot. Biden will do anything for Biden. He has sold his soul and his country to globalists. You said one of your podcasts, uh, on one of your podcasts, the principles by which we're governed matter more than the quality of a person's life. And I did hear you say that. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, um, that's, that's not quite what I meant. Um, if, yeah, I don't think that's, that's exactly what I said. Um, what I was saying is that, listen, this is in response to something Tucker Carlson said. Right. Tucker Carlson had said that Moscow is a better place to live regardless of what principles they're being governed by. Now, I strongly object to that because I think the quality of our life is determined by the principles according to which we're governed. Those two go together. And uh, in my particular point in that episode was to, was to say 
look, if life seems great to you in a totalitarian regime, it's because you are not the targeted person, at least not yet. You're not, you don't belong to that group, whether it's Christians, whether it's the, uh, the Wagyu, whether it's the, uh, excuse me, Wagyu is a beef. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a beef, isn't it? <laughs> Uyghurs. We can make cuts, by the way. So. <laughs> if life to use, <laughs> you know, it's, it is a weird spelling. Phonetically, it's strange. When you said that, I, I just immediately Uyghurs. thought of steak. Uyghurs is what it looks like, <laughs> but it's Uyghurs. Um, if life to you seems great in a totalitarian regime, it's because you are not a member of any targeted group. Mm. So the example I used, for instance, is Nazi Germany. If you're a white Anglo-Saxon, you know, Protestant, uh, that is to say you weren't, you weren't Jewish, uh, you weren't a gypsy, um, life could seem pretty good. And apparently it did to a lot of people. But if you don't object when your neighbor's being taken off in the middle of the night, who's going to object when you're being taken off in the middle of the night? So my point is simply to say that the principles by which we're governed determines the quality of life. It determines justice. It determines absolutely everything. So explain to me how you can be pro-human and at the same time anti-immigrant. I understand you prefer they come here legally. But their need to migrate far outweighs the U.S. immigration system's ability to meet those needs. At what point will you acknowledge the fact that our anger should be directed at those who are causing the migration and not the migrants themselves? God has been very clear how we Christians should treat immigrants. Yeah, this question, it's one that I've seen on YouTube and then the person posting it went on to social media and posted it again. And I think he seems to feel that this is his, I think his name's David. I think he seems to feel this is his mic drop moment, a kind of gotcha moment. I'm not quite sure where he got the impression that I'm anti-immigrants. I haven't said that. And if you were to go and read um, the series that I did uh, for the American Spectator called The Border Crisis from the Other Side of the Border, uh, where I don't know, two or three years ago, I went all over South America uh, interviewing uh, some of these people who are making their way to the United States. And I'm, I'm, I'm about to do that again. And, um, you know, many of them are people that I found remarkable. Some of them are people that I would, I would swap a dozen Democrats for <laughs> every, every one of them. Some, many of them, uh, those that are coming from South America, not coming from the Middle East or Africa or... Um, you know, China, uh, many of them are people who are coming from a, uh, a strong Catholic background, very pro-family. They are um, anti-socialist because they're fleeing socialist hell holes. Uh, and they're the kind of people who will come here and succeed because they want to work. Um, I'm not anti-people like that. But I think we have to have a, a sensible policy. And part of that policy uh, is vetting the people who are coming into this country. We do know that many of those who are coming in are criminals. We do know they're people with ill intent. We are seeing a spike in crime in our inner cities, rape, uh, misogyny, as a result of some of the people who are coming into the country. 
Um, I'll also add this. The biblical argument is a lousy one. The biblical argument actually favors me. It doesn't favor this guy. He seems to think that the, um, the Bible supports this idea of somehow of open borders. Go and look at the history of Israel. What did the Lord say to them? He said, you are to remain separate. He even said you should not intermarry with them. And he says, do not allow your daughter, your sons and daughters to marry them because they will lead their hearts astray into the worship of foreign deities. Um, any a house divided against itself cannot stand. And any organization, any church, any political party, uh, any country cannot stand if it does not have uh, governing principles. And if the people coming into this country cannot say, I hold these truths to be self-evident, the truths that are embodied in the Declaration of Independence uh, and, and encoded into our law through the Constitution, they shouldn't be here. And Ilhan Omar should not be in this country. She should not be in this country. Definitely shouldn't be in government because she can't say that. I mean, she might say it, but she'd be lying. You have individuals who do not hold to our core principles. They don't value them. They don't want to keep them. They want to destroy them. Those are the kind of people that shouldn't be allowed in the, to the country. And that's, that's the biblical message. Do not be unequally yoked. You're, you don't just let anybody in. Now we're, we're, we have people who um, do not hold these truths to be self-evident. And that's, that's becoming quite evident in what's happening um, in our country and in our cities because we've become a very divided people. So, no, I'm not in favor of open borders. I'm not in favor of everybody who wants to come coming to America. That said, my wife and I have helped people come to the United States. People who we, we knew were, um, would be great American people, I mean, who, who loved America more than many of the people who, who live here and who cherish those values and those principles. I hope that answers the question. Everyone's gonna encounter pain in their life. Questions deal with the degree of one's pain and the source of one's pain and how we deal with our pain. In this course, I'm speaking very personally about my own pain and some of the lessons that I've learned in coping with pain, how we minister to people with pain, and what kind of perspective are we to have on the big questions that surround pain and human suffering. Why would you take a course like this? Well, presumably, if you haven't suffered in your own life, you will encounter people who do, and undoubtedly some of them are people who are very near and dear to you. I think it'd be very helpful for you to take a course like this in order to understand what they're experiencing and the way that you minister to people in those kinds of circumstances. So I'd love for you to take this course of mine, and I wanna tell you this, that when you subscribe to Tome, you get access not just to my course, but to more than a hundred other courses that are dealing with very practical issues and assisting you in living and in flourishing. So where can you get this course? Well, you can't get it at Amazon. You can't get it at Apple. You can't get it at Netflix. You can only get it at Tome. So I want you to go to tomeapp.com pain to learn more about my course. Let's get back to the podcast. Larry, you inform my mind better than anyone. 
but a question remains unanswered. What do we do? You know, that's a great question. And I have to say we're sitting out here, by the way, and it's a beautiful day. And we do have some boats that are occasionally uh, going by on the lake. And um, a lot of seaplanes land out here. They're constantly coming and going. They're sea taxis is what they are. And uh, so if you hear that in the background, it's just nice background noise. I actually like it because they're fairly happy noises. Um, but that's a great question. A lot of people do want to know because we have all these terrible things that are happening. You're right in that. And what do we do about that? Um, I don't know if you'll find my answer satisfying or not, but uh, I think, I think first of all, um, you need to be very clear on what your mission is. I think you have to answer that question. What is your mission? And I know not everybody who listens to this show is a Christian, but I, I'm a Christian and that informs my mission, the way I think about my life and what I do and what I don't do. And I find Acts chapter six to be very helpful here. And in that passage, it's a passage that actually has, you know, racial, ethnic um, overtones. And it says that something to this effect, I'm, I'm going from, uh, from memory here, but a complaint arose amongst the Hellenists against the Jews. And what that means is there were, there, there, both parties were Jewish, but one of them was, uh, uh, one, one of them, as I say, they knew who their daddies were. They were, you know, they were Hebrews who spoke the Hebrew language. And then there were those people who had been Hellenized. They'd become more or less deeply influenced by Greek culture. They no longer spoke Hebrew. Um, they were speakers of Greek and they're culturally, they were much more Greek. And though, though both of them are Christians, there's the potential of a, of a rift between them. And it says that the, the daily distribution of the bread, uh, the feeding of the people, that there was one group that said, hey, the others are getting preferential treatment. They're getting preferential treatment. So how did the, how did the church deal with this? Well, it says that the apostles, the way the apostles dealt with it was that they appointed, this is where we get deacons in churches. The diaconate was formed as a result of Acts chapter 6. And it's, it's where the apostles say, we will not be you know, drawn away to the serving of tables. You know, we, we need to keep teaching. But choose for, uh, from among yourselves seven to serve, to serve as deacons. And thus churches are supposed to make a, a differentiation between their, their elders, as some would call them, uh, who are spiritual shepherds and deacons who see to the physical care of the body. Now, I may be getting more theological here than you want, but what I'm, what I'm getting at in this is that I love the apostles' response. It wasn't that they thought they were too good to serve tables. They didn't think that. They didn't think that for a second. They knew what their calling was, and their calling was to teach. You see, you can be pulled away from your, your mission, not just by doing bad things or evil things, but even good ones that you're not supposed to be doing. So years ago, you know, 30 years ago, when I was working in a chemical plant, I was going to, um, to class during the day and I worked from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in a chemical plant in a laboratory. And when I first started working there, because I had been, you know, taught to always stay busy, when I was done running the, uh, the experiments that I was supposed to perform in the lab, I picked up a broom and started, you know, sweeping up a little bit. And I remember my boss saying to me, he says, we, we pay you too much for you to be sweeping the floors. I think I was 20 or something like that. And um, I wasn't paid that much to be clear, by the way. But I was paid more than minimum wage. 
And I understood his point. His point was, don't worry about that. We have people who do that. That's not your mission here. Your mission is different from that. And um, as it relates to all that we're talking about here, what's going on in, uh, in this country, you need to be clear on your mission. Do you know your mission? I find that a lot of young people haven't any idea what their mission is. They go off to, um, to college, graduate with a degree in English, and end up being a stay-at-home mom. I'm all for stay-at-home moms. I'm not in favor of getting pointless degrees in English. I know guys who get degrees in uh, government and decide they want to be accountants. You know, you, you need to have some clarity as to what your mission is. And once you know what that is, you will know what it is both within the kingdom of God and within this country. For me, my mission here is doing this. It is to try to equip um, the faithful so that you can fight the good fight. It's also to combat bad ideas, or as the Apostle Paul puts it, to demolish arguments and every lofty pretension that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. That is my mission. And, and, and it, it empowers me when you have clarity about that. I kind of hate to use the word empowers, tend to be used by feminists, but anyway. Uh, it empowers me to say no to things. Sometimes they're good things. There's nothing wrong with them, but somebody says, hey, Larry, you want to go with us on this mission trip to you know, work, you know, to dig clean water wells? No. And it isn't because I don't believe in clean water wells. It's because it's not my calling. I need to be, remain very, very focused on my calling. And I would say for 25 years, I've been very focused on my calling. And thus I play a role in the defense uh, of the faith. I mean, I have a Land Rover Defender for a reason. <laughs> and, um, and also in the defense of this country. I think, I think those missions go together. Do you know your mission? I'd also urge you to pray. For some of you, that'll seem like a cop-out. I don't think so. I think, I think the, uh, the parable of the persistent widow is an important one. I think our Heavenly Father waits for us to nag him, as it were. How bad do you want it? Are you going to ask me for it? I think with my own children when they're growing up, the way I judge something by how much they want it is how much they're willing to ask me for it. How much are they willing to work for it? If you're not asking, I have to assume it doesn't matter to you that much. Are we a praying nation? We need to be. So I think these are some basic things that you can do. And to that, I would add holding your, uh, we're a democracy, we're a republic. Hold your representatives accountable, nag them, uh, be a squeaky wheel, annoy them. They, they are public servants, treat them like public servants. So I think those are things that you do. <clears throat> totally agree. <clears throat> all right, so we have a question that says, uh, you seem good-humored in spite of all the evil things going on that you see. What's your secret? Well, I will say this, that my answers are too long in between puffs, and so I'm having a hard time keeping my cigar <laughs> lit. Um, see, if I had, like, Prather... Sitting here with me, Ferguson, it'd be easier because they're going back and forth. They would do some of the talking while, you know. You're I, puffing. I, I, that's right. While I'm puffing and when I'm talking, they're puffing. So you keep your cigar lit. Um, I think that the way you, you part of the way you you stay positive is, is, I'm not a Pollyanna. Obviously, I know what's happening in the world. I know there's a lot of negativity and it can be very depressing. Mm -hmm. But 
I'll come back to what I said in my previous answer. I'm, I'm a Christian. I know we win. I, I don't know exactly how we win. I mean, I, I've, I've, got the, I've got the major story arc, right? From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. I know that at some point the trumpets will blast and he will right. return. That's right. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like between now and then. I know it's going to get pretty rough. But there are a lot of people who think we're now living in end times. I remember my mother telling me in childhood that she can recall preachers coming to her door in Vancouver, Canada, Vancouver Island, where she was from, telling them that this was the end. And I mean, why wouldn't people think that? I mean, you have the Holocaust, you have Mussolini and Hitler, you know, uh, the destruction of Europe. But guess what? It wasn't. I don't find it useful to try to predict when the end time is. And why that matters is because if you believe that's the case, you have a lot of Christians who just kind of pack it in. They're like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's, it's, everything is lost anyway. I don't believe that. Why, why should I think that? I wouldn't do what I do if I believed that. So I do what I do because I'm called to do it. And because I believe in a sovereign God who acts on behalf of his people. So knowing that you're on the winning team should give you a little swagger, should give you a little confidence. My confidence isn't in Larry Taunton. My confidence is in Jesus Christ. It's in his truth. It's in his ultimate triumph. That matters to me. And, uh, and I also say that just from a practical point of view, it is important that you face yourself. You used to have hobbies, put your phone down, turn off the TV, go listen to some music that you like listening to, go for a walk, take a vacation, um, enjoy your family, enjoy your wife, enjoy your husband. Um, take some time to um, smell the roses, as it were. I think those things matter, the little tender mercies that the Lord gives us every day. I mean, enjoy them. It's okay to enjoy them. I remember in uh, Martin Luther's table talk, a woman saying, Dr. Luther, is it okay to enjoy a good meal? And he's in his reply, I'm, I am uh, paraphrasing, but it's something to this effect. He says something, he says, I do believe if the Lord made good, good beef and good wine, then I should enjoy eating them and drinking them. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a good attitude towards life. And Martin Luther was obviously a fighter. So he wasn't an Epicurean. He wasn't a hedonist, but he did enjoy life while at the same time um, remaining faithful to his calling. Next question is about Elon Musk. <clears throat> Do you think that he's controlled? <laughs> so frustrating. Do you think he's controlled opposition? Uh, do I think that Elon Musk is controlled opposition? Um, by the way, this is a Cohiba Bahike 54. Look that thing up. And it actually is a perfect draw, and it has been perfectly seasoned. It's just that the guy smoking it right now uh, is talking too much to keep it lit. Um, no, I don't think Elon Musk is controlled opposition at all. I know there are people who think that I could be wrong, uh, but that's not my impression of Elon Musk. If, if he's controlled opposition, then, uh, then I don't think, I don't think uh, Twitter is nearly as effective as it's being. I mean, we know that the Tucker Carlson um, 
I was looking at the data on this recently, the Tucker Carlson interview of Vladimir Putin, which quite obviously globalists and you know the Biden administration did not want us to see, that got at last count more than a hundred million views. Yeah. More. It's got over 200 million views. But it has outdrawn the Super Bowl's domestic audience by more than 100 million people. And they did it without Travis Kelsey and, and Taylor Swift. <laughs> Sorry I had to mention them. <laughs> so obnoxious. Do you like, what do you think of Ron DeSantis? Do you like Ron DeSantis? I do like Ron DeSantis. I think he's a great governor. Um, I would vote for him for president. Uh, undoubtedly, I think he, he. I hope he's the future of um, of conservatism, politically speaking, um, in America. I do not understand uh, how some Trump supporters have just sought to belittle and maul him. You know, it, being for one doesn't need to make you hateful of the other. Um, why can't you like them both? I get it. They're we're competing against each other, but nonetheless, I, I I have been shocked by some of the hate that has and ridicule that's been dumped out on Ron DeSantis, who, in my opinion, is a great governor, and I think he'd be a great president. And he got COVID right. Trump didn't. He did. Ron DeSantis absolutely got got that right. So I and. I like the fact that DeSantis, he, he clearly has been a lifelong conservative. Uh, this isn't about politics for him. It's because he clearly believes it. So, um, yeah, yeah, I like, I like Ron DeSantis. If he had become the, the nominee, I'd voted for him. But he won't be, and um, so I'll, I'll end up voting for Trump. Uh, talking about Trump, that leads us to the next question. Do you think Trump will be the president? Um. <clears throat> Well, let's let my answer be somewhat nuanced. I think he will be elected president just as he was before, but I don't think he will be president. And the reason I don't think he will be president is because the fix is in. The fix is in. I've been saying this all along. Um, they are um, they're treating, when, when you see politicians treating their own constituencies with utter contempt. It is either because they're retiring and thus don't care, don't plan to run again and thus don't care, or they know the fix is in. And in this case, they do. Um, Joe Biden barely campaigned before the 2020 election. We saw the red wave, you know, going across the United States and then suddenly the voting stopped. I think we're moving you know, towards something uh, just the same again. Because according to the polls, it should be an absolute wipeout in favor of Trump. It's not going to happen. And it's because uh, un until, until ballot harvesting is addressed, and I don't, I don't see that anyone on the Republican side is very serious about addressing it uh, because the rhinos are against Trump. Um, I don't see anything changing. So no, I don't think you will be, sadly. Some say they're going to try have the trial in the sentencing right before January, and that's the plan. Probably, um, and um, 
They're clearly trying to set up a scenario where even if Trump were to somehow win the Oval Office and, I mean, actually be taking the Oval Office, that they reduce him to four years of utter ineffectiveness because they are weaponizing um, every government office against him. So how's he going to get anything done if he's got a Pentagon that's woke and won't cooperate with him, or a Justice Department that's woke and won't cooperate with him, or a Homeland Security that is woke and won't cooperate with him, uh, a Congress that's woke and won't cooperate. That's that's what they're trying to set up, so that even if he does win, it really doesn't matter that they're still able to do whatever they want to do. Uh, that's a that's a source of serious concern. Uh, change the subject here. Uh, do you travel with a team or do you travel alone? <laughs> I uh, I will say this: I need to keep this thing lit. There we go. Um, I uh, almost never travel with a team. Um, sometimes Lori goes with me, my wife. Uh, sometimes she goes with me. She looked at at a recent trip that I was doing. You know, I was going to Davos and Switzerland and London and Scotland and North Africa and back to Europe. And she said, uh, no thanks. <laughs> uh, I invited her. I would have loved for her to come. Uh, but it was probably the best that she did because it turned out... I was so busy, um, I had almost no time for anything. And I think that would have been frustrating to her because she would have enjoyed, you know, having a nice dinner here and there and, you know, maybe taking in a few sites. As it was, I was doing so many interviews. I was trying to get out, you know, episodes of Ideas Have Consequences, trying to write articles. I was busy in meetings and going to events and doing all the things that I was there to do. There just was no time for that. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, if I'm going to a place that it's going to be a very nice hotel and it's going to be uh, a good situation, I'm not going to be quite as busy, it's easier to take her along. Uh, occasionally, a team member might go with me for filming or for technical reasons. I haven't done that in a, in a while. Uh, and I don't take anyone with me when I'm going to dangerous places. And um, so I, I guess the answer to the question is sometimes I'm alone, sometimes not. What, since you travel a lot, what tips would you give someone for traveling? Uh, that's a book. I could write a book on how um, to travel. In fact, the book on the bottom of that stack right there, Around the World in More Than 80 Days, I do believe at the very end of that book, I offer lots of travel tips. My first travel tips is bring handy wipes. The world is a dirty place. <laughs> make, make sure you pack them. You'll be glad that you did, along with some clean underwear. But I, I think my, my response to that has to be determined by where you're going. You know, are you going to the third world or are you going to, you know, London city center? You know, there, there's, my response will be different in, in both cases. If you're, if you're going to, um, let's, let's just take those for example. Let's say you're going overseas to a first world country and um, 
you know, where, where we're not worried about clean water and sanitation and, um, you know, being mugged. I would say try to stay in the city center. Uh, you're not really saving a lot of money by saying way out. Uh, you may think you are, but you know, let's say you're only there. Most people are all there. A typical vacation is nine to 10 days for overseas travel. And if you're going to spend hours commuting in and out, uh, you're, you're, it's costing you money because you're not able to see and do the things you would otherwise be doing. Pay the extra money and stay in the city center. I mean, if you're able to do that. When I was a, when I was a student and um, a, a, a younger married man, um, I often traveled very poor. I mean, I had virtually no money and um, often uh, just picked up bread uh, at bakeries, you know, a big loaf. I carried a jar of peanut butter and I carried, um, you know, chunk cheese. And um, that's what I ate. Um, you know, so I've, I've been in that situation where you were staying in the city center wasn't an option because I just couldn't afford it. Um, now I'm in a, in, a, in a place that's a little bit different from that. And, um, and particularly for my work, it's just not a good use of time. So stay in city centers. That's important. If you're going to the third world, I think it's absolutely vital that you see as an important part of your security that you stay in reputable hotels. Um, a lot of criminal activity takes place in hotels because the hotels may in fact be part of the criminal activity, stealing your things, um, uh, drugs, uh, human trafficking, a lot of these kinds of things. That as a rule is not happening at global chains that are reputable because they want good reviews and they take your safety very, very seriously. You may say, well, I can't afford, I don't wanna spend that extra money. I think you need to see it as insurance, you know? Um, so I think those things are important. That's, that, that's my first bit of advice. And then I would just say, um, please don't be, don't cling to TripAdvisor, you know, or some equivalent to that. Uh, just get out and, and experience and enjoy the history, the culture, the food, but listen to what they tell you in the hotel because uh, they'll know and, um, and, and they'll be able to tell you um, where your time is perhaps best spent. Were you always politically conservative? Yes. <laughs> um, I would, I, I can't say that I, I mean, I, I probably like any young man when I was a kid, I, I can't recall being, um, particularly interested in politics. Um, I, you know, I would hear my, my dad talking about it a little bit and I would see some in the, the news and of course here, here, um, our teachers and so forth talking about that. But I think my political consciousness, uh, really kind of came along with Ronald Reagan. I was 13 when he took office and as a 13 year old, I was a Reaganite. I, I mean, if you've seen, <laughs> if you've ever seen uh, Family Ties, I was Alex P. Keaton, you know. So I was very, I was, I was very, very much a um, a political and social conservative. I no point in my life have I ever been pro-abortion, you know. For instance, uh, that's never been the case uh, for me. Um, but yeah, I would say that I, I pretty well always have been, and that's due to the fact that I grew up in a military family. 
uh, at least the, the military that I, I knew historically, I know this has changed since they're purging mm -hmm. the military uh, of um, the traditional kind of recruit, but um, the, the military has traditionally been a very conservative institution. And, you know, people who served believe that there were principles that were worth fighting and dying for. Certainly my father did. Uh, very patriotic. And, um, you know, and I've inherited that. All right, that leads to the next question that's part of that. What thinkers most influenced your thinking? Oh, wow. Um, well, I think you would have to say, and perhaps this feels like a trite response, but uh, obviously my parents, uh, some teachers along the way were very informative, uh, excuse me, very uh, instrumental in, in shaping, forming my own thinking, some professors that I have, but I'm, I'm guessing that's really not the question that you're asking. Um, Etienne Gilson, theologian, Sorbonne, uh, fascinating guy. His thinking um, has really influenced my interpretation and understanding of history. Very important. Um, Cardinal Henry Newman, uh, big influence on my thinking. Francis Schaeffer, a big influence. John Calvin, read the Institutes. Wow, that's a that's a tour de force of logic. Um, my friend John Lennox, he's had a real influence on my um, my biblical thinking and understanding. Uh, Alan Bloom, the closing of the American mind. I had to read that as a freshman in college and. Um, I was blown away by it. And there would be numerous others that unfortunately I'm not thinking of right off the top of my head. Some of you will be listening and going, oh, I don't like that guy, or that guy was this, or he was that. Do bear in mind, I mean, let's take for instance, Alan Bloom, uh, the author of The Closing of the American Mind, reads today just as, just as relevant as when it was first published, I think in 1988. Bloom apparently was a homosexual. Um, I don't have to uh, agree with a person's lifestyle or everything they believe for me to value some of what they have to say. I don't agree with, I'm not Catholic, so clearly I don't agree with um, Gilson and Carlo Newman and absolutely everything they had to say. I agree with a lot. So it's okay to take some things and you know and to, and, and to leave others, but those were those were individuals that had a profound influence uh, on my own thinking. So someone said, "Are you for Russia or Ukraine?" Uh, and they think it seems like you've justified Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, no, I have not justified Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I've, I've explained it, and there's a difference. It's important that people understand that. It, it is very funny that there are pro-Ukraine people who think that I'm a, I'm a Putin you know, operative, and there are um, Russians who think that I'm some kind of pro-Ukraine operative. I guess that means maybe I'm saying the right things. I've said this repeatedly. There are no good guys in this war, perhaps least of all the United States. Ukraine is a, is a buffer state, and buffer states, by definition, 
need to remain on good terms with those superpowers between whom they are geographically placed. Ukraine would have done well not to get in bed with the United States, to remain friendly with the United States, to try to remain friendly with Russia. They share a border with Russia, not with the United States. That's important. But Ukraine decided not to do that. They made some very poor decisions. And um, we provoked this war. I keep saying that. Um, we have used, if, if you're a Ukrainian, I get it that you hate Russia. I understand. But you should hate what the United States has done because you don't understand. <laughs> you're not understanding how my country is using your country. My country is prepared to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. We are so, the, the, the uniparty in Washington is so dead set on toppling Putin, they don't care about Ukrainians. If, if, if they can win this war and topple Putin, which is, which is what they would consider a win, and it wipes out half of the manhood of Ukraine, I think they're good with that. I think they're good with that. I think that's the way they think. So I think there's vast corruption on all three parties. And again, for those who want to say that I don't know what I'm talking about, I've spent a fair amount of time in Russia, spent a fair amount of time in Ukraine. Uh, my very first book was a history of Ukraine, of corruption in Ukraine, published in 2011, well before this war, so I can't be accused of having had any agenda beyond exposing child trafficking there, which takes place in Russia too, and now in the United States. It pains me to say that my own country, the United States, is under this administration and under the Biden administration is a global villain. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that. And I say that as somebody who travels a lot and I see the influence of my government's policies around the world, and that often is pushing a very sordid agenda. So you've said that atheists have no morality, uh, and this person says, I'm an atheist, and I'm a moral person. Um, you know, it's funny that this is, this question comes up all the time. I've never said that atheists have no morality. There are many moral atheists, uh, many decent moral atheists, sometimes more so than religious people. But on the whole, the data says that's not the case. I mean, it's a matter of historical fact that most of the genocidal maniacs of the 20th century were atheists. Yeah. Stalin, an atheist. Hitler, an atheist. He was into like, like pagan... Um, Germanic, you know, sort of mythology, but only because he found it a convenient prop. And I know there are people who will say, ah, but, you know, they put on German belt buckles, you know, for God and this sort of thing. His biographer, Alan, Alan Bullock, says that um, Hitler saw Christianity as a useful tool. That is, those pastors, those ministers, those priests who were willing to collaborate with the Nazi government. The same was true in Russia, in Stalin's Russia. They're more than happy to use them, but not real Christianity, 
real Christianity was mortal enemy of totalitarianism, of Nazism, of fascism, and of socialism, uh, of communism, Bolshevism, mortal enemy. It is why, and we're coming back to somebody who influenced my thinking, Francis Schaeffer, in the very first book of his that I read when I was 15, it was heavy, heavy plowing for a 15-year-old. Uh, but he says this, no totalitarian or authoritarian regime can tolerate a people who say they have a universal, absolute standard by which all men are judged. And that's Christians. He, that statement came on the heels of Schaefer saying, answering the question, why did eventually the Roman um, emperors institute policies, Diocletian, for instance, most notably Nero, uh, right there with them, um, that were so hostile to Christians? Why? Why do that? And Schaefer said, because Christians are, by definition, rebels when it comes to tyranny. Why? Because they do not acknowledge the state is supreme. They always say that God's law is above that of the state and actually serves to judge the state. The founders of the United States believed that. They didn't appeal to British law in their rebellion. They knew the law did not support them. Human law did not support their rebellion. Who did they appeal to? God. The Declaration of Independence is appealing to God's law as being higher than man's law. We don't care what British law says. It's a damnable law because we believe all men were created equal and were endowed by their what? By British law? By their creator. And it was on that basis that they rebelled. That's what Schaefer was getting at. Christians are a threat to any totalitarian regime. And it's because they don't acknowledge the state as supreme. Traditionally, American government has taken a favorable view of Christians. And that's because the state hasn't sought until recently to become a god unto itself. The Roman emperors did it. If you read the, um, the letters, the correspondence between uh, Pliny the Younger, who was um, governor of Bithynia, this is in the first century, A.D., uh, between Pliny the Younger and Trajan, Roman Emperor. Pliny sends him a letter and says, look, there's this contagion sweeping the countryside. People who call themselves Christians. We've heard rumors that they are cannibals. Do you know why they thought they were cannibals? And they did think they were cannibals. Can you guess? Because of um, the Lord's Supper, communion. The rumor was that they drank blood and ate human flesh. So the Romans were innocents in this regard. They really believed that. They'd heard that. These people are cannibals. But Pliny's letter says, we've investigated that charge against them and we find that it's not true. However, we have been told that they cannot worship anyone but their God. So we place your image before them, emperor. And we ask them to worship it. If they refuse to, we give them a second chance. And if they still refuse to, then we execute them, he says. And Trajan replies and says, sounds like a sound policy. But again, now the state is doing the same thing. Um, it's putting an image before you and telling you to worship it. You know, it's Nebuchadnezzar's 
you know, 90 foot tall, nine feet wide, um, you know, image of gold telling, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the gathered Babylonians to worship it. And they refused to do that. That's a proper Christian posture. I've even forgotten what the question was. <laughs> it was, uh, are atheists, can, did they, can they have more? Oh, okay, let me, <laughs> let me come back to that. You get, feel free, guys, to cut if you don't like my answer. So let me add this. Atheists, atheists, on the other hand, they don't believe in, I mean, if they're consistent, they don't believe there's any higher laws. There's no such thing. They don't believe there's a God to judge in the next life, your actions in this one. They believe this life is all you get, again, if they're consistent. So while there are plenty of moral atheists, they're moral for no rational reason other than just altruistic ones. I'm not going to treat you bad for fear that you might treat me badly. But not because I believe you're made in the image of God. And see, and I as a Christian believe you're made in the image of God. You are an image bearer. And that requires me to treat you with a certain measure of respect, even if I didn't like you. I do. But if I didn't, let's say. So this is why you're increasingly seeing Western governments treat human beings like raw material. Because, I mean... I recently met somebody who's formerly head of Planned Parenthood. You don't believe in any kind of God that I, I know of. Kali, Molech, the devil himself. On what basis do you do that? Well, you don't do it if you believe there's a God who's going to judge you for that. You just don't think twice about killing human beings because... This life is all there is, and there's no God to judge me for it. And I can make a handsome profit off of it. That's the way they think, many of them. So it isn't that I believe that atheists don't, can't have, can't be moral people. Many of them are. I've known many of them. One of the, again, this goes back to major influence. One of the biggest influences on my life is a guy by the name of M.R.D. Foote. He's a famous British historian. I don't know that he died an atheist. His daughter, who is, um, is a theologian at Oxford, uh, thinks it's possible that, that, he, um, that he did not. But um, he was an atheist. Now, I think if you had asked him the question, like he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have taken a guy like Richard Dawkins seriously. He wouldn't have considered him to be a serious academic. At least, I don't think he would have. And I think if you'd asked him if he believed in God, I think he would have seen it almost as an interruption to his work. He was a very serious historian. I can picture him maybe having a response like, uh, no, I don't think so. I just don't think it was really a major question on his radar until possibly the end of his life. But he was a fine man. I wouldn't even say a great man in many respects. Certainly a great historian. And he influenced my thinking in that regard. But he was deeply influenced by Judeo-Christian worldview, and it informed his morality in a lot of ways. Um, okay, so last couple questions. What's the most dangerous country you've been in? Um, as I've said many times, Nigeria. 
It's not to say that there aren't places just as dangerous. I'm going to be in South America again soon, and I, gosh, I've probably been in South America 10 times in the last two years. There are places in South America that are very dangerous. I was just in Africa, um, Egypt. Egypt isn't really African. It's, it's more Middle Eastern. I mean, technically, it's geographically, it's part of Africa, but culturally, it's Middle Eastern. My driver and translator thought some of the places that we were going were extremely dangerous. But as a friend of mine says, we were having this conversation with somebody who was from Zambia and was disputing what we were saying. Saying, ah, Nigeria's not that bad. And um, <laughs> uh, she didn't know that he had been in Nigeria uh, when a riot broke out and they were burning cars looking for Westerners. And for nine hours, he hid in the wheel well of, an, of a truck, like an automobile. And to this day, he still kind of limps from that experience. And um, <clears throat> I remember his response, which I thought was a great response. He says, the point isn't that there, that there aren't similarly awful things that happen in other countries. It's the sheer scale of it in Nigeria. And it is. And if you're watching the news, you know the Christians are being macheted, machine gunned, bombed uh, in Nigeria. Nigeria is a, um, is a terrifying country, actually, when you start to go into the, into the central and northern parts of the country. Abuja, you know, you, you can fly to Abuja and you know, have a reasonably positive experience. Um, but Lagos is same thing, but <clears throat> it's a, um, it's a, it can be a terrifying country. And, and particularly uh, if you're white, because you stand out, you, you can't hide. As a Colombian uh, woman who was, who, was, who was a friend of mine told my son, she was, she was dating him at the time, <clears throat> but he wanted to go to where she lived. And she said, you can't go there, it's too dangerous. And he said, but you go there. And she looked at him, she goes, you're a gringo. <laughs> and her point was, they look at me and they know that I'm a Colombian and I, I'm poor, I got nothing. You, that's different. And in Nigeria, you get into the North and there are almost no white people, unless we're talking about people who are working for oil companies, in which case they have, they have armored cars, they have um, heavy um, security. If you're going into the north without any of that, um, you're you're vulnerable. And I've done that, but it's it's dicey. <laughs> Scary. That's what it is. So, but I've been in many other countries that are also very dangerous. But but Nigeria is by far the worst. Uh, wrapping up, what is your favorite podcast that's not your own? <laughs> Um, this will probably surprise some people. I don't listen to any other podcast. I say that as of late, I've actually started listening to this. This comes back to an earlier question. How do you remain positive? I do not immerse myself. Yet my, if my wife were, were sitting out here, she would say, this is not true. <laughs> she would say he absolutely does immerse himself, but I try not to immerse myself in all the negativity. Um, I don't watch the news. I don't, I don't watch, uh, CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or anything like that as a rule. I tend to get most of my news from a, you know, a couple of websites here or there from, from Twitter, from X, 
Um, but I don't as a I don't as a rule watch say Tucker Carlson or something like that. I watch the Putin interview, but otherwise I can't say that I watch him other than when I see clips come up. And that's not because I don't like him or because I don't think I have anything to learn from any of those others. But there, there's two reasons that I don't. One is I don't want to mimic other people. A lot of intellectual property gets stolen where somebody can listen to my show and repeat it on, on theirs without attribution. I, I want to have an influence on the way other people think, but I prefer that they acknowledge where they, you know, they got some of their ideas from. There are people who, who do some of that. Um, and I think you can also do it subconsciously. You just listen, you just listen to, let's just say you're listening to Joe Rogan all the time. You're going to get where you talk like Joe Rogan. You talk about the same things as Joe Rogan. There's already a Joe Rogan. We don't, we don't need another one. Uh, so I don't want to do that. The second thing is when I'm not doing what I do for a living, I want to do something else. I want to think about something else. We have a boat blowing down the, uh, the lake right now. Amazing. These things will do like 70, 75 miles an hour along here. And uh, these guys are getting to their fishing hole in a hurry. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I try not to mimic other people. And uh, I try to research the issues as carefully as I can. But I have started listening to travel podcasts, which are fairly lighthearted and interesting. Some of them try to bring some politics into it, and I immediately shut them off because I don't want to hear that. I'm not, I'm not interested in hearing you know, what some travel writer, you know, has to say uh, on politics. But I am interested in hearing just for fun, you know, somebody else talking about their own, you know, backpacking trip through Europe or something like that. And I could find that, that very interesting. But, but, but as yet, and I'll take suggestions, I haven't found a travel podcast that I've really loved. I've listened to maybe 10 so far. And there have been some that I think are, are pretty good, but none that I thought were great. So I'm, I'm just jumping around, you know, listening to a few here and there. That wraps up the questions. Very good. Well, this has just been, again, a little bit of an offbeat episode of Ideas Have Consequences. I try every now and then because a lot of you uh, make uh, comments and have questions that are posted on social media, that are posted on YouTube that are posted elsewhere. I don't always see them. Sometimes I'm asked them in, uh, in public situations, you know, where I might be speaking or somebody coming up to me after a talk and wanting that, or it might be questions that I'm getting when I'm traveling. So we try to, you know, just every now and then to try to stack all those together and give you a composite of what those questions are. So I hope this has been interesting. I hope it's been helpful. Uh, and I will give you a review. The Cohiba, this was given to me, by the way, by a colonel, a Cuban colonel. And no, I'm not pro-communist. <laughs> but this was given to me by a Cuban colonel. It is Cohiba Bahique 54. It's one of the finest cigars in the world. My recommendation is don't talk so much and keep it lit. <laughs>